0: stages of labor, hormones of birth, and timing contractions are not the most important or effective ways to learn about physiologic birth. And chances are, you've learned some of that, and you still have questions about what to expect from birth. And these questions linger because the sources that are teaching childbirth preparation are only offering facts about labor and birth created to enable the medical system to justify the use of interventions to speed up labor despite the injuries experienced by mothers and the disruptions to the mother-baby bonding. Before birth became a medical procedure that needed these guidelines and metrics, women were shown physiologic birth instead of charts and graphs and tables. Today, we have the benefit of merging traditional physiologic birth knowledge with what is useful from research and evidence And this has been the key to helping my students and clients avoid things like tears and traumatic birth injuries and go on to have fulfilling natural births. If natural birth is calling you, merging traditional physiologic birth with learning modern knowledge may be the answer to your lingering questions. And you can begin the journey of seeing physiologic birth with a free class that will introduce you to the three Ps of physiologic birth that help my students and clients avoid tearing in only 15 minutes so you will know why you can trust your body to give birth without injury. After watching this 15 minute video, you will know what physiologic birth really is and why learning the stages of labor, lists of hormones, and cervical dilation rates is just not enough, the most common points in labor where tissue damage tends to occur, and how to use the three Ps of physiology to prevent the causes of tears or episiotomies. And you will learn the difference between being 10 centimeters and being ready to push. After seeing the physiology in this way, one of my students, Sarah, said, simply mind-blowing. Thank you so much for sharing this information. I want to share this with all of the birth professionals that I have ever met, as it is so clear to me now how we have all been missing the big picture. And Cassie said, I took four courses and yours is the one I walked away with feeling the most empowered. Very specifically, the physiologic birth part where you show the slides of where baby is. Having known what baby does in that dance with the pictures, just let me trust the process. So I never felt worried. So if you'd like to learn more about what Sarah and Cassie are talking about, you can get started with this very special and unique physiologic birth training for free at naturalbirthcompass.com forward slash free class. I hope to see you there. rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. Richard Feynman. How much should you use research and evidence-based information to inform your birth? Is research in the realms of pregnancy and birth even useful or practical? And if so, how does it inform your pregnancy and birth? And if not, what can you use to inform your birth? So questions of research and evidence-based medicine, that's what's on the Journey to Birth podcast today. Imagine transforming the anxiety, the worry, and uncertainty you have about your birth right now into the confidence and knowledge that will end everyone's questions about your natural birth and even have them asking you how you did it. Are you ready to stop imagining your wonderful birth and start preparing to experience it? Then you're in the right place. I'm Tristan, the creator of the Natural Birth Compass online childbirth education program. And I'm coming to your ears with perspectives of birth from across time and cultures to help you become more informed and confident in your birth. So grab your mug, fill it with your favorite tea, and let's begin the journey to birth. Though in the West, we're used to looking at research as part of our medical information and evidence-based information has become a popular idea for pregnancy and birth. It's the limitations of research and evidence in regard to birth that can impact your birth outcomes. And these are important issues that aren't readily shared by medical professionals or in most of the birth preparation materials that women have access to today. The concern with research is that, Research is often mistaken for truth, for an answer. When something is published in research, it's often considered by those of us outside of the realm of research or even medicine to be a final answer. But research is part of science, the continual search for answers. It's usually not an answer itself. Really, when you think about life and all the complexities of the human body and how we interact with our world... It is so complex and full of questions that we may not be able to ever have all of the answers as to how our bodies operate, certainly when it comes to something as big and extensive as creating another human being and giving birth to that baby. So even more so when it comes to birth, to that in utero life of babies and the transition into life for a newborn, research can never factor in all of the variables and All of the things that we really just don't know. And actually, I personally find that fact to be reassuring, knowing that we don't really have to know everything or understand all the aspects of birth and life, and it still just finds a way. I feel that there's a little bit of calm in knowing that some parts of life are just still pure and shrouded in that mysterious wonder of life itself. But the more we muddle our understanding of life with science, the more complicated we make life and the more complicated we make living our life. Now, I don't watch a whole lot of television. I just don't have time left in my day for it by the end of the day, usually. But I did watch a cute show after it came highly recommended by a friend called The Good Place. And one of the episodes in this series talked about how hard it can be to live in our current society with all the complexities that we now have in our system. And I'm not going to go into exactly how they were using this for the show. But basically, they were talking about how difficult it is to even buy a tomato because that tomato can come with so many negative consequences. We have the GMO issue, we have the issue of fertilizers and pesticides and water consumption and the ethical treatment for growers and for the harvesters and how that tomato gets transported to your store and the transportation impact of you going to the store to buy the tomato. When in reality, the act of planting a tomato seed and growing a tomato plant and picking a tomato from your own garden to use on your own salad is so simple and so pure and a bit mysterious. We don't really know all of the factors that go into growing that tomato, and into how nature grows that tomato, but we know that given the right circumstances, it just happens. And usually that tomato tastes so much better too. So let's get back to birth and let's get back to research and how we're making things oh so complicated in the world of birth and in how you go about setting up a birth plan maybe if you're writing up a birth plan and or just making decisions for what you want or don't want in your birth. So let's take a simple example of induction of labor because we know that this is so common. So many women are faced with this scenario during their pregnancy. So there's a draft of a study published in 2019 by a woman named Anna Maria Marconi to evaluate the research that exists around the topic of induction of labor. Now she begins with this abstract. The rate of labor induction is steadily increasing, and in industrialized countries, approximately one out of four pregnant women has their labor induced. Induction of labor should be considered when the benefits of prompt vaginal delivery outweigh the maternal and or fetal risks of waiting for the spontaneous onset of labor. However, this procedure is not free of risks which include an increase in operative vaginal or cesarean delivery, and excessive uterine activity with risk of fetal heart rate abnormalities. A search for induction of labor retrieves more than 18,000 citations from 1844 to the present day. The aim of this review is to summarize the controversies concerning the indications, the methods, and the tools for evaluating the success of the procedure, with an emphasis on the scientific evidence behind each. So that's the abstract, the general idea of what this research is about. And in this article, the researcher covers in some depth a few of the common reasons of induction, including elective induction, which can be defined as either induction in the absence of fetal or maternal indication, or by others, it's defined as an induction that is planned before a need arises, rather than being implemented as the need comes up. Essentially, what you see by the end of this article is that the researcher has difficulty determining whether the results of induction of labor are a product of the precursor or the induction of labor itself. Now, the precursors here included a whole range of things like a post-term pregnancy, so a pregnancy that goes to 41 weeks or longer, depending on the definition of the particular practice. Uh, diabetes or gestational diabetes, premature rupture of membranes, suspected large babies, which is called macrosomia, or oligohydromniose or extra amniotic fluid, and a whole list of others. I'll put a link to this article in the show notes so that you can access the whole article for yourself if you'd like. Now she goes on to write, In conclusion, for very few of the precursors reported in the guidelines or the scientific literature is there clear evidence that induction of labor actually improves the obstetric and or perinatal outcomes. An example for all is isolated oligohydromnios at term, a popular precursor for induction of labor. A recent meta-analysis, including 2,414 women with oligohydromnios and 33,585 controls, but only one randomized trial with about 50 women showed that oligohydromnios represents a risk factor for induction of labor, cesarean section, and short term neonatal morbidity. However, it is difficult to define precisely whether the outcomes represent the effect of induction of labor itself or that of the precursor. The same applies to other clinical situations in the presence of maternal and/or fetal pathology. So from this conclusion, you can see that often the actual research itself isn't conclusive. And part of its job is really to get deeper into what the real questions are, just as this researcher has done. However, many doctors and, and definitely with self-proclaimed birth experts who write books or are people in your Facebook groups and social circles who believe that they're reading facts in these studies... Even a fair number of midwives today, they're all turning to research to try to define these boxes that we want to be able to enclose pregnant women and their babies into. We want to be able to try and define safe and unsafe and try to predict what will happen in a woman's birth, all in the name of trying to prevent negative outcomes. The question is, are we causing more negative outcomes than we're actually preventing by complicating everything in this way? The other confounding factor for a lot of the research is that it generally involves births that have high intervention rates on many levels because these are predominantly hospital births. And just the mere fact of being in a hospital means that there's automatically interventions involved. At minimum, there'll be some level of fetal monitoring, an IV line or a hep lock of some sort, being put on a labor clock, maybe denied food and water if that's the hospital policy, And of course, being interrupted by medical staff to check in on you when you maybe don't want anyone in the space. Now, you could argue whether these are invasive to you and to your birth preference, but we can't argue as to whether these are interventions. They're only happening because someone else is involved in your birth and is in part deciding some of these aspects for you, whether you're aware of it or not. Now, today's episode is not about whether or not these are beneficial or necessary or right or wrong. All of that is an individual choice. The only reason I'm bringing this point up is to point out that these aspects of hospital birth will impact the unfolding of birth and therefore the results of studies. And so it makes it extremely difficult to use research to apply to a home birth or even to a birth center setting where the environment may not be medically focused. So you can see why using research to make your decisions about birth can make things messy and confusing because research isn't really about answers. It's about continually trying to get deeper and deeper toward answers, but knowing that we never actually have the answer. And to lead into the next thing that I want to talk about, it's actually in part because of these various complexities of research that we have this idea of evidence-based medicine even being formed. So the history of evidence-based medicine that's extremely important to this conversation is that it was formed out of the study of disease progression and public health from a field known as epidemiology. It was a way to look at real-time data of what happens in populations along with current research and then use that information to apply reasoning into a medical practice for an individual patient. So there are three primary components to evidence-based medicine. The first one is clinical research. The second one is the practitioner's clinical experience. And the third one is a patient's desires about their own care. And here's where this focus on evidence-based medicine becomes problematic for pregnancy and birth. So we already addressed the problems with using research. So I'm gonna skip number one and move on to the second aspect, your practitioner's clinical experience. So your practitioner's clinical experience is a direct expression of their beliefs about birth and their own fears about birth, which themselves are based on their education, their exposures throughout their life from as far back as their upbringing and their family's beliefs about birth and the exposures that they had through media, the same as we all have, and to their medical school environment and their current work environment and the limitations of the environment where they practice. And most doctors and midwives who attend traditional schools in the US, they will tell you that the education is predominantly focused on handling emergencies and complications of birth. And it's not focused on how to recognize normal and variations of normal. This means that your birth provider's understanding of birth is shaped by this exposure to all the what ifs, and that affects how they can help you and what they believe to be safe and normal. And that brings us on to the third aspect your desires for your own care. Today, for those of us working in more traditional birth environments, and by traditional birth environments, I mean less technology-based birth environments, we see how much a woman's understanding and beliefs about her own birth can be limited by a lack of knowledge about the care that you need. Most women giving birth are not birth professionals, not OBs or midwives or doulas, so the level of knowledge is limited to what's available in books or online or what you learn from other people, whether that's in a childbirth course or from your friends and your family and, of course, from your care provider. And all of these sources are also influenced by the first two pieces that we talked about in this evidence-based medicine model. So if the information that you are getting about birth is influenced by misappropriated research and experiences of providers who have in turn been shaped by that same misappropriated research, how do you get clear about your desires for birth and what you really need for birth? You can see how this idea of trying to create a more informed model has actually added its own complexity by muddling up the whole world of birth. And that may contribute to some of the confusion that's out there about birth today. But you can clarify much of the picture of birth, because birth is actually so simple. It's easy to forget this fact, but every time I meet with my cohort of birth practitioners who choose to understand pregnancy and birth from the principles of pregnancy and birth itself, who tap into the mysterious aspect that nature will reveal to you if you just step out of the hectic technology-driven world for a moment and look around every now and again. It's in those times that I'm reminded of just how simple and safe birth really is. The stories that I hear from these birth attendants are so different from what's out there in the mainstream, even from your common midwifery practices. These births are full of trust in the mothers and the babies. They're full of intuition and rational guidance from technology only if it's deemed truly needed with fully informed consent from the parents. It's technology that's used only after any what-if fears have been addressed and set aside so that these choices are coming from a calm and rational place and not a fear-driven place. This makes so much more room to interpret the scene instead of assuming that everything is an emergency just waiting to happen until you're proven wrong with the birth of a normal healthy baby. I know that this can sound more complicated and more out of reach than using clear and concise research, something with statistics and facts and data, numbers to base your decisions on. And that's exactly why so many people try to turn to research. It seems so much easier because things are black and white. But these decisions, they cannot be made ahead of time. They can only be made in the moment. We're only able to be fully informed when we are in the present. We can't predict the future for anyone. We can only pretend that we can so that we can interpret our lives by numbers and statistics and make something sound so much more clear when actually it's so much more complicated if we do that. Instead, to be informed about how birth works, you would be better served by observing natural cycles and seeing the rhythms of nature, rather than getting lost in research, in statistics, even what we call evidence-based medicine, even though it sounds like it holds so much truth, evidence-based medicine. In the 25 years since the introduction of this method into obstetrical care, we haven't actually improved overall outcomes for mothers or babies, but we have increased a lot of birth trauma. So look to nature. And then if you want to take your knowledge deeper, You can learn some of the basic physiology that we do know to inform you about why birth works over 90%, actually, probably about 97% of the time when we get out of the way, when birth professionals get out of the way, and when you can just sink into birth and let go instinctually and intuitively. That's when birth becomes magical and transformational. So take some time to watch a sunset. Follow the moon through its phases, plant a seed and watch it grow and transform, or watch a fire burn into coals. Feel the flavors of your food. All of these are lessons from nature, and they all reflect the process of birth unfolding. Then, if you want to add physiology, learn how your blood volume expands to meet the needs of your baby and how this results in a small, normal lowering of your hemoglobin then you'll know if you need a supplement with iron or not. And learn how your baby's blood flow shifts in the moment after birth and why that cord blood is so important to support that transition. Then you don't need someone to define the amount of time to wait to clamp your baby's cord. You intuitively know when it's the right time. Research is a long way from defining safe and unsafe, and perhaps it never will. But nature always knows. You just have to tap into that knowledge. So if you've been getting stuck in the research and evidence-based information and you don't really know where to turn, I hope that this has given you some peace and some new ways to look at how to understand pregnancy and birth. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your pregnancy journey. I look forward to meeting you here again next time on your journey to birth. Thank you for listening and being open to new perspectives as we spend this time together. As always, let me know how I can support your journey. If you have topics you want to hear about, guests you'd like to hear from, questions or comments to share, let me know. This podcast is always transforming and you can help shape it into something that helps thousands of families have the best pregnancy, birth, and transition into parenthood possible by leaving a comment or a review or sharing this podcast with others in your life who will benefit from our discussions. Find me on the socials at Natural Birth Compass, or email me at info at naturalbirthcompass.com and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on our next episode. Wishing you a wonderful journey to birth.